What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Total Celebrity segment, and I'm so excited to welcome the program Marlon Wayans from NBC's Marlon. Marlon, thanks for calling, man. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a huge fan of In Living Color. I've had Tommy Davidson on my show um, countless times, and it's it's so great to have you on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Tommy's crazy. I love Tommy. Isn't, isn't he? Tommy! So, what, what did you learn from Tommy? Let's go, you know, especially, you know, you came into In Living Color at, at close to the end. What did you learn from Tommy? Um, I learned that uh, his commitment to physicality and his energy in every scene, um, I learned uh, it was um, like amazing. I learned there are no small parts, only small actors, um, and uh, that you can make the most of every moment. Uh, Tommy never let any moment just be a moment. No matter what character he was doing, Tommy always gave it his all. And that's key, and that's so important. And then I guess the experience when you talk about In Living Color, it was just such a huge thing to, to, to jumpstart the rest of your career, right? Wouldn't you say just to be part of that cast and working with such unbelievable comics and, and the Wayans brand itself, right? I was lucky. I was so lucky to go to... Uh, in Living Color was comedy college for me. I got to uh, work with greats like Damon and uh, Keenan and Jim Carrey and Kelly Copefield and Kim. And, you know, I was just a young buck. And I, I remember all all those lessons, just sitting there watching those guys in their prime just be brilliant. And uh, 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 20 years later now, I'm, I'm, I have the opportunity to execute the same thing on my show, Marlon. Uh, and I apply all of that. And it's so it's so important because when you learn in those skits, you learn how to develop characters. You learn so many different things, and you learn how comics and comedy works. And you said that was it was a school for you for sure. Yeah, I mean that 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 if without that school, I don't know if I'd be the comedian I am today. And I also know how hard the work is. And that's why I'm on the road working every weekend to try and get better. Uh, because the more you work, the, the harder you work, the better you get, and the longer time you will have in this industry um and uh for me i this is a a marathon not a sprint i don't want to i've been in the game 25 years and i feel like my best years are ahead of me and i truly believe this we're talking to marlon wayans on nbc's marlon on the neil haley show and looking at uh, again the next opportunity you had which was scary movie so you go from one unbelievable brand to scary movie with uh, Keenan, and and this this is huge because you're a writer now. So you go from you know learning from comedians and working your craft to then writing, and that must have been an unbelievable experience with Scary Movie. It was. I remember Keenan sent me, um, "I'm gonna get you, sucker." When I was nine years old. Oh, I, I love that movie. That's, and, uh, yeah. And I read that script, and I laughed my behind off, and I was like, "Wow, my brother wrote that. I want to be a writer." And from that day on, um, I started writing young, and we wrote Don't Be a Menace, and then uh, created Scary Movie, uh, White Chicks, Little Man, and, um, you know, it was always a dream to get to the level where I could work with my big brother uh, and partner with him, and uh, we was able to accomplish that. And uh, for me, that, I mean, like, you know, there's no greater, nothing greater than working with your hero. Absolutely. And then now, Marlon, to have your own show, I'm sure this is a dream of yours, Marlon, forever to say, okay, now uh, my show, Marlon, and looking at the specific things. And I love the the, the storyline because, again, uh, a couple that uh, separate, decide to still work together. And there's so many families like that, aren't there, Marlon, that have uh, work in so many ways. Yeah. So many broken families, but the reality of it is sometimes 
your heart is broken, your ego is broken, but you don't have to break your family. You find a way to make it work, find a way to become friends, and uh, because I think it's important for kids to see that their mama and daddy can uh, love them and love each other as well. So, so true. And uh, that, that, coming up with that storyline, did you write this as well, Marlon, the show? The, the no, I- life, life wrote it for me. I, <laughs> I, I, my, my ex uh, kicked me to the curb, and then um, I, after that, we had to figure it out. And so uh, we just learned to be great friends, and we still go on vacations together. We still, you know, hang out. Um, I still spend a night over there sometimes, um, and I date my family. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's not so. It's reality meets life in so many ways in the show and going through that. But again, this blended family such an important part of a situation that people see this show as something that hey, this is this does happen in real life. We are not the Cosby Show anymore. You know, there are there are broken families. There are, there are people that get divorced, but they have to make it work so the family continues to work. And that's the premise of the show. And your character, you bring that comedy edge to it in the way of, you know, of showing, hey, you're a father, but yet you're, you want to have fun with your kids. You want to do certain things while your ex is like, no, I don't. I want to keep it straight and narrow. So it's an interesting uh, working back and forth in, this, in a relationship like that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it comes from a real life situation, and um, you know it's it's great when I, you could take your 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 life and make it art. And uh, laughing at my laughing at pain is a great thing, and laughing with laughs, and 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 just creating a forum that I can. It's a cloud for me to just express my life, and uh, it's a blank canvas, and you know it's kind of like um, life is creating the art. So, what should we expect season two, uh, Marlon? Tell us about what we should expect in season two. Um, for it to be funny, um, I, I didn't think we could make a funnier show than we did uh, in season one, but somehow we managed to make uh, another ten really funny, strong episodes. I think season two is funnier than season one. That's great. That's fantastic, and that's an excitement of working with the cast, and I'm sure you enjoy the cast as well, working with them on a regular basis. I love my cast. Uh, I've I've known each one of them outside of this for a long time, and I'm just really blessed to to be able to work with them. I think they're all so funny and all so talented, and we keep each other laughing, and we're we're all really good friends. And it's rare that you get this situation where you could go to work with people that you love and uh, do what you love. So you know, I'm blessed, and I don't take it I don't take it for granted. All right, again, everyone needs to tune in Thursday night for the season premiere, 9 p.m. Eastern on NBC. And, Marlon, where can we connect with you and stuff, social media-wise and stuff? Oh, at Marlon Wayans on Instagram, at Marlon Wayans on Twitter. If you're listening to this right now, tweet me, at Marlon Wayans. I'm going to retweet you. Um, at, at, at Marlon L. Wayans on Snapchat and Marlon Wayans fan page on Facebook. Tomorrow, the premiere of... Season 2, Marlin at 9 and 9.30 on NBC. And also, you can binge watch Season 1 on Netflix now. You love this, right? You see how important social media is and all the media is to promote your show. And there you go, a family-friendly show that people can watch and laugh. And uh, it seems like you've really learned a lot of life lessons in your career and best success and continued success with your career, Marlin. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. All right, take care, man. See you later. Okay. Bye. You're listening to Neil Haley Show when we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. Also, the media giant effect. My guest today, I'm going to have such a fun time with them. All stars from Young Rock on NBC. Guys, thanks for stopping by. You know, it, it, this show means so much to me because I'm a former professional wrestler. So it's it's interesting to see the whole wrestling business. And I watched, I binge watched the two seasons and everything. And how many, I guess, go right to Stacy first. How much feedback are you getting from people that are re- professional wrestlers about this show? Because it really, I lived the life on the road. I was only a minor leagues professional wrestler, never made it to the WWE. I did TV once. But to see a lot of the story just really hits home for wrestlers. What are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I don't get much feedback from professional wrestlers, but um, I do get a lot of feedback from people who remember meeting Asa back in the day or Leah or Rocky, you know, um, and it's all amazing and good. And they really love 
um, it's like nostalgia. They get to go back in memory lane and see these characters and be like, oh my God. And then, you know, people might tweet like a random fan photo of him as a young kid and be like, this is when I met him and it was 1999. I love all that. It's, it's really nice to be a part of um, kind of awakening people's memories in that way. And Bradley, what have you learned from, about professional wrestling since you've been part of this show? Because it really gives a lineage and a history of this, the sport. So much. I mean, I thought I knew about wrestling and then, you know, the show started. <laughs> I realized it's a lot deeper uh, than it goes. I mean, I, I knew about The Rock and I knew about Stone Cold, Triple H, all those guys in the early 2000s. But um, the history with Rocky Johnson and how all the wrestlers knew each other, you know, the Dwayne knew all these wrestlers when he was young, teenager and younger. Um, I know that I've learned that wrestling is just a big family. It's a huge family. I mean, I literally, when I watch the show, I pinch myself because again, I wrestled with the Bushwhackers. I wrestled with King Kong Bundy. It's just like, and I, and I and you know, Jimmy Supersize Snooker was on shows with me on the, you know, at the end of his career before he passed away. So it's just like, holy cow. And it just really tells more of a story to what the business is about. So I don't know if you, Joey, have you heard anything on the end playing Rocky that people reached out to you that knew Rocky and were that wrestled with Rocky and stuff like that and getting feedback of how you've been playing his character? I think people are, are so shocked at how much I, I look like Rocky. They 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 can't believe it. Um and and one of the uh one of the episodes I actually wrestled with someone who was tag team partners with Rocky in Memphis. And so he, he was like just blown away by, you know, the uh, similarities. And then how about like learning the lineage of Memphis? Because I did wrestle in Memphis and I, I I told Bradley this before. The Rock wore my knee pads. He forgot his knee pads in the TV taping. I was in Memphis and I wrestled and The Rock wore my knee pads. So shout out to The Rock. Again, my uh, podcast is number 12 celebrity podcast in the world. So Dwayne, I'm calling you out. You know me. We work together with Burt Prentice and Jerry the King Lawler on shows together, I'm asking you to come on my show. I had to just put that shout out out there. You know, it's called, and that, that's something I'm sure that you guys have learned. Dwayne, working with Dwayne, Dwayne really expects a lot and he expects other people to really step it up. Would you guys agree? Go left to right on that question. Would you agree being part of this whole story? I mean, just seeing how, how hard he works, it makes everyone want to work harder like it, it just he, he brings that out of everybody yeah he definitely brings it out of everybody and and, 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 he, and he, how he learned interesting about how he learned promos in last season and how he looked at all these uh older pro wrestlers and their ability to do promos and then now i go back and watch the rocks promos and i say holy cow i see all those differences that were from other people like uh Dusty Rhodes and like some of the other people, superstar Billy Graham and, you know, even Jerry the King Lawler. He has some of the stuff of Lawler. I wrestled Lawler multiple times and stuff like that. All right. So I just wanted to kind of give that feedback of wrestlers. There's tons of wrestlers watching this. They're learning the business in so many ways. What should we expect this season without giving everything away? Stacey, go, you go first. I think we're now in this season and for fans of the show uh, who know kind of the story chronologically where we should sort of roughly be at, um, there's a lot of treats in store because we, we're at this kind of pivotal time in Dwayne's career where he's taking off and, you know, becoming who we know as The Rock. And so I think it's, um, it's going to be a really interesting watch for fans to see that and, of course, see all the other characters that are around at that time and some really, you know, beloved wrestlers and faces and people that we all, you know, make up like our childhoods. And, again, it's about the nostalgia of it all. It just, it's just really super cool. And how, where's your character going this season, Bradley? Are we seeing a more, learn more about what's happening with him and some of the other stories that happen with him? That's the cool thing is going back in the sideline. You see seeing stories, but the reason The Rock became The Rock was based on specific stories. That's what's so awesome about the show. There's so many, especially in my era, there's a lot of these kind of mental notes or these moments that changed his mindset which really, you know, led to him getting to that point where he became a wrestler and he became The Rock, um, but with his priorities, but also what he, um, you know, where he gets that determination, where he's going to work hard and he wants to outdo everyone else, you know. Um, 
but also that he becomes a good person at the same time. You know, he's not going to knock anyone else down just to, you know, build himself up. And in my era, I get a little bit older and I'm getting ready to go to college. And uh, Dwayne thinks he's going to go to the NFL and he's going to buy his mom a house. He's going to take care of his family, make all the money, you know. So I, my character is a lot more confident and a lot more um, sure of himself and where he's headed uh, this season than before. He's not the Dewey of 15 years old. Now, so you're going to have to hit the gym more then, right? That's a challenge for you, right? If you're going to continue to look at the build and what the next character ends up being and they're showing your story, right? Yes. Is that true? <laughs> Training more? You know, yeah. and yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, Joey, kind of jumping back into specifically enough, your character, you made, a, uh, as Rocky Johnson, you made a lot of bad decisions throughout your career that cost you opportunities, especially with Vince and things like that. Are we going to learn more and more that backstory, especially where, you know, he made the decision to go work for another promotion and missed out on WrestleMania and things like that. Yeah, we're definitely going to see what happened in Saudi Arabia. We've talked about it, but you know, this time we're, we're going there and uh, we're going to get to see what was ultimately the downfall of Rocky Johnson. And you learn, Joey, in this process, uh, Joseph, and learning this specifically, what's happening in this whole deal is you're you learn in being part of this character that ultimately the professional wrestling business is very political, and if you make the wrong steps or the wrong mistakes, you don't end up somewhere if you're not connected to somebody. But I think that what Dwayne was able to do in this story, and we're going to learn more about it, is he was able to play both sides the political end of it, but also he was not willing to take it as we're going to learn about where he was, you know, getting booed by the fans and the gimmick wasn't getting over. And Vince thought it was time for him to go. And ultimately he took a chance, right. And said, I'm going to go out and do this. And that is exactly what Rocky does. Right. So he used some of what Rocky did at times in his learning experience said, well, I now have to be more like Rocky, my dad, to, to not allow this to happen. I'm already on top. I'm going to stay on top. Isn't that true? Wouldn't you agree? That's, yeah. Yeah. That's why wow, I never thought about that. Yeah. He actually did. Wow. Because he saw specifically enough in his character. He knew that, okay, my dad stood up for me at times. My dad didn't take it for certain business promoters. Remember when he was going to go work at this promotion, get paid a good amount of money from last season. And he said, nope. I'm not paying. I'm not going to represent that kind of character. I'm out. Dwayne explained those things. And I think that might have had more to do with the storyline. Uh, what did you learn more and more about wrestling, Stacey, from being, the, again, uh, a playing a promoter, especially, and all that? What would you say your biggest learning experience is from learning the business, from just kind of the scripts and understanding it more? Yeah, I think it was, it's kind of what Bradley touched on before about the um, the kind of connectedness between everyone and and um, I mean going into it I, I, I'm very open about the fact that I just was not a wrestling fan I, I kind of had my preconceived ideas about it and the world that it was in and it was like instantly kind of blown the water as soon as I got on um, to set and see early on in season one and watching these guys um, work with Chavo Guerrero and um, you know do all the moves and stuff and learning more from from Chavo from Brian about the behind the scenes and how things the mechanics of how things all worked and I was uh, it really gave me a whole new respect for the world of wrestling um, and I think you just that I, I never I it never really kind of dawned on me how um, just generational it was in um, the kind of like lineage of some of these wrestlers and how they're all connected from back in the day. And especially like we touched on a lot of that show with how, you know, Dwayne literally grew up in that world and talking to Atta, uh, you know, about her parents, Peter and Leah, and how she grew up in that world and hearing some of these stories about what she kind of was exposed to and saw as a young girl, you know, with her parents in that world. And this carries all the way through to now DJ's own daughter, you know, and it's, it's just when you think about that time span of like, we're going back to like the sixties, yeah. <laughs> you know, all the way through it. Amazing. 
And then what Dwayne was able to do was overcome a lot of obstacles in the business because, again, a lot of stars, after they made it, they go back on the road and they're hitting the gimmicks table. And he chose the movies. And I'm looking forward to see where that happened. And he's helped John Zena in so many ways be able to step out because Hulk Hogan never could do it. He never could do become the movie star. And now The Rock is paving the way for many professional athletes, pro wrestlers to be able to go do that for sure. And guys got to tune into Young Rock. Best place we can follow all of you. Go down the line. Tell me where we can follow you. But again, tune into Young Rock again tomorrow night, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, only on NBC or catch up again on Peacock, which I caught up in all season two uh, when I was traveling. So, guys, any place to follow you on social media, hit up your spots. Where can people follow you? Stacy, where can yeah, they follow me? You can follow me on Instagram, Stacy Leilua, and on Twitter, Stacy MS Leilua. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Bradley Constant, or we also have a Young Rock TikTok now. We're going to start posting some cool behind the scenes stuff. It's Young uh, Rock Talk. All Young right. Rock talk. <laughs> And then where can we follow you? Good. On Instagram, at official Joseph Lee Anderson. We appreciate it, Joseph. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. And I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Climate Change, the real story podcast with our host, Dr. Robert Marks. Dr. Marks, how are you? I am good. Uh, today, we're going to focus in on two topics off of uh, climate change. And the reason for it is uh, right now, the climate change real scientists are sort of gathering together uh, for another foray about real science. Uh, and I will have been talking with several of the um, significant people such as John F. Kloster, who is a uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist. Uh, and, and his point is about how basically Al Gore and the radical CO2 people have got it all wrong and didn't factor in a, a lot of variables in their models. So he attacks a lot of the models. And so uh, before I do the next one directly on um, climate change, uh, I want to be sure that uh, we collaborate a little bit. So the information I can pass on is rock solid. Okay, let's get rolling. Okay, the, uh, the one I want to do today for everybody is called The Sacred Cows of Modern Society. Now, if you watch the news, you will periodically see an arrogant newscaster in a very self-righteous tone bemoan that no one is above the law. Now, of course, if it's CNN or MSNBC, they are referring to former President Donald Trump. If it's a conservative news station such as Fox, they're referring to Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. Uh, these are sacred cows will probably never get punished for any of their misdeeds or breaking the law. But uh, what is a sacred cow? In history, the sacred cow concept comes from the book of Exodus in the Christian Bible, uh, where the Israelites were uh, breaking the, the rules and the ethics at the time and were worshiping a golden calf. And that's where the concept of the sacred cow comes from. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, and then it, it's embellished in the Hindu religion where the sacred cow is not allowed to be slaughtered, even though people would be starving uh, because there's some important aspect to the cow that is not realized by other religions. Okay. So I look at the definition of um, sacred cow, and it basically is just a simple one. It says an unreasonably above criticism, individual, or concept. And I like the word unreasonably above criticism. Okay. So, okay, in our society, I have seen three groups that I think are the sacred cows of our current society. One, you can guess, are the politicians. Right. Number two, celebrities. Number three is some of our sports figures. So I want to go over a couple examples that will probably strike home to uh, anyone who's listening. Well, on the political aspect, I will defer any judgment or any discussion about either President Biden or past President Donald Trump because they're going through a legal process and it's not totally sure that they're going to escape any real jail time or real punishment at all, although they probably will. But let's focus in on the first, the obvious one is Hunter Biden. Uh, here recently, he was um, uh, indicted. Uh, that's taken over five years 
uh, on face value, on just what the public even knows. He is already uh, obviously guilty of obstruction of justice, lying on his gun control form, uh, and, and several other accusations, including drug use, drug selling, promoting prostitution, and down the line. There are so many right. different things. And at this point, most of the pundits and most of the so-called experts are saying, well, it doesn't matter. He's never going to do any jail time. And here's a person that if you or I did any of that, we would be in jail for decades. Yes. So the next one is, should be another obvious one who escaped punishment and shouldn't have uh, goes to Hillary Clinton. I could do the whole podcast on her alone. Uh, it might start with the Whitewater scandal of the, uh, oh, I think it was the 1990s, uh, where a land deal between her and her husband fell all apart. Uh, she was the only one that made money. Everybody else either lost money or was indicted for felony. Uh, so, in fact, Susan McDougal was uh, indicted for uh, a felony of money laundering and fraud. Uh, and uh, Bill Clinton, when he became president, pardoned her. So uh, you can see that one escape. But um, probably the most egregious thing is Hillary Clinton from Benghazi, which is another uh, criminal activity of hers, leaving a lot of our, our ambassadors out to dry in a, a massacre, for lack of a better term. But she did, without any uh, compunction and under subpoena, destroyed evidence. That's obstruction of justice. She acid washed 33,000 emails from her BlackBerry. It wasn't even a, an iPhone that we use today. It was a BlackBerry. <laughs> Very insecure. And of, of course, she never was uh, accused of anything uh, and escaped punishment to even run for the presidency in 2016. Fortunately, the uh, public uh, uh, saw at least some guilt in her and failed to elect her, although she was probably the odds-on favorite at the beginning. So that's another sacred cow that if it were you or I should be in jail for so many decades, it would be uh, absurd. Now, another one, and not showing any bias toward any uh, party, uh, look at Richard Nixon. His famous quote of all the quotes that he's ever had is, I am no crook. And yet he was a crook. <laughs> he orchestrated and approved the Watergate burglary break-in. There were five burglars. Uh, he essentially... Uh, ordered the burglary uh, to presumably uh, find dirt about the Democratic National Party and then uh, was going to use it in his campaign against George McGovern. Uh, probably didn't even need it to beat George McGovern, who was not a strong candidate. So uh, here, he too, he was embarrassed enough that he resigned from the presidency. Uh, he was uh, impeached, if you will, and then Gerald Ford pardoned him. So he never served any time for accessory to burglary or breaking and entering that you or I would. And then maybe the last one that should bring bells from the past is Ted Kennedy. Uh, in 1969, uh, he drove off to Chappaquiddick Bridge into the water and uh, claimed that he dove several times to find uh, his uh, tryst partner, uh, Mary Jo Kopechny, who was a 28-year-old, a very nice-looking blonde woman, uh, at that time was one of his campaign assistants. Uh, and uh, yet after he dove many times, he didn't report the accident until the next day when he became sober. Um, nobody did a drug alcohol level on him, but he was obviously drunk. Um, uh, he ended up with uh, a, I think it was two months suspended sentence, leaving the scene of an accident, reckless homicide. He never served a day in jail. Again, sacred cows. So when you hear this nonsense, nobody's above the law, nonsense in itself. Many people are above the law, particularly if you're a politician or a celebrity or a sports figure. All right, let me move on to a couple samples from celebrities. Uh, more recently, we all know that Alec Baldwin uh, shot uh, his cinematographer uh, right. on the uh, movie scene of Rust. Okay, well... In the NRA, and anybody who knows anything about guns always knows there's no such thing as a gun accident. It's always negligence. So here is an actor who is playing around, literally, with a loaded gun. He didn't check the gun whether it was loaded in the first place. Uh, he didn't check the gun to determine whether there was a blank in there 
or it was an active round, which it turned out to be. Uh, and then in his ministrations around it, uh, which was not part of the uh, of a shooting of the film, he was just playing around uh, in, a, in a break session. Uh, the gun goes off and it kills the cinematographer. Now, of course, he makes the claim that uh, the gun went off accidentally. But again, that was not accident. It was negligence. Uh, but the FBI has looked at it twice now and has basically their statement that the gun could not go off accidentally. It has to be pulled. Uh, the trigger has to be pulled. And that trigger has to be pulled uh, aggressively because it's not a, a quote unquote sticky trigger. So um, uh, he's gotten off dot free. And it's kind of um, interesting to note that Alec Baldwin has been a fundraiser and a big donor to the Democratic National Party in California. So you wonder where that's why, Dr. Marks, he's not gotten in as much trouble as he could have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that, that's Alec Baldwin. But then let's take a look at the most famous one of all, uh, O.J. Simpson. Now, I could put him in the category of sports celebrities, but when he allegedly murdered uh, his uh, wife, Nicole Brown, and her lover, rendezvous person, Ron Goldman, he was retired from football. He was a sports celebrity. He was broadcasting sports on uh, Monday Night Football. Uh, he was a commentator like many of the retired football players we see today. So why isn't he in jail on that? Now, he later did a burglary that he went to jail for for a short time, but he's now walking the street. Well, I've always had this particular quote that I think people should remember. Uh, I would rather be guilty and have a good lawyer than be innocent and not have a good lawyer. And that's exactly what happened. First of all, uh, the judge in the case uh, uh, disallowed a lot of evidence particularly the evidence of him driving down uh, the interstate in California with a gun pointed to his head. Now, if your wife is murdered and you're not the murderer, why are you attempting suicide? Particularly after you had several documented uh, fights with your wife. So why are you committing suicide? Uh, so um, that was not allowed for the jurors to say. So the jurors were a little bit blindsided. Secondly, uh, the, the, attorneys for uh, for OJ were much more brilliant and on the ball than Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden. Uh, the, the famous quote that really saved OJ was, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Johnny Cochran came up, played the race card. Johnny Cochran came up with the most catchy phrase imaginable and totally hoodwinked Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden. Now, what do I mean by that? Right. Well, Anyone who, like myself, has lived up in the north and as a kid had snowball fights with our leather gloves, you know, when they get wet and they get cold, after it dries out, it shrinks. Many times I couldn't fit into my glove of yesterday, literally, after it dried out, it shrinks. You basically have to put oil in it. You basically have to work it, work that leather back into shape. Point is that almost every baseball player, when they get a new baseball glove, they need the glove. They basically work oil into the glove to soften up the leather. It's a similar concept. So Johnny Cochran knew all along that that glove, who, which was in the evidence pile, would not fit. So he primed the jury, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Ergo, OJ got off. Um, okay, here's another one that maybe people won't remember. Uh, another celebrity, Snoop Doggy Dog. Now, Snoop Dogg Dogg's real name was Calvin Broadus. Now, he was an up-and-coming rap star in 1993. Uh, he actually belonged to the Long Beach Crips, well-known drug gang, okay? So it's kind of like distant past because he's a little likable celebrity right now. Uh, what happened is that uh, during one of his videos, a competitor by the name of Philip Walderman uh, accosted him. And of course, that created bad feelings. So that evening, Snoop Dogg and uh, his bodyguard, Malik Lee, went out on a car ride and ran into him. People argue whether they were after him or not. And his bodyguard, Malik, shot uh, their competitor. He was an Ethiopian illegal immigrant who was also into the rap scene. 
and was his major competitor. Well, it turns out that the two eyewitnesses and the police could not find a weapon, yet Snoop Dogg and his um, bodyguard claimed self-defense. Uh, miraculously, they were acquitted of uh, murder or accessory to murder uh, because some of the evidence was conveniently missing from the scene as well. So um, here's another person now who uh, has escaped all of this, uh, who now does several commercials uh, with uh, a beer commercial uh, and uh, has even recruited Eli Manning to be part of the threesome that is lauding this um, this beer. So uh, here's another no one's above the law, certainly the bubble law on this one. Okay, let's migrate over to the last group that I think, and that's sports stars. Now, O.J. Simpson was a sports star, but at the time he did the so-called murder, was accused of the murder, uh, he was not a sports star anymore. But let's take a look at a, a couple sports stars that you may or may not remember. And I'm sure you as an audience can think of many celebrities, many politicians, and many sports stars who were above the law and escaped punishment for some obvious wrongdoings and criminal activity. Well, let's take a look at Lenny Dykstra. He played for the Mets and he played for the Philadelphia Phillies. He was really an all-star. He was a slugger uh, and he produced, uh, after his retirement, 25 counts of grand theft auto. <laughs> he was uh, accused of fraud. Uh, sexual assault, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, money laundering, and identity theft, as well as drug, drug possession, uh, steroid use in sports. Uh, he, with all of those accounts, received only a three-year sentence, but served only six months before his sentence was commuted. If you or I would have done any of those, well, he did 25 counts of Grand Theft Auto. If we would have stolen one auto, we'd still be in jail rather than doing this podcast. So some of these get to be ridiculous. Now, uh, there's two more I want to bring to your attention before I conclude. Uh, another uh, great baseball player for the New York Yankees, Jim Lairitz. Uh He was um, overtly drunk. He crashed his car, killed the, the driver, who's a woman of another in another car, his blood alcohol level was 0.14. Now, a high blood level is 0.8. This was almost twice as much of the legal limit. He was acquitted of DUI manslaughter. I, I have to wonder uh, how in the world you can have a drug alcohol level almost twice as much as normal. The police identifying that he couldn't pass a sobriety test was almost unconscious at the time of his arrest. And yet that's not DUI. Um, shame, shame on the system, whoever blew that one. Right. And then probably the last one and more recent one um, from this podcast to last Monday Night Football was uh, Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson uh, is a quarterback for now the Cleveland Browns. Um, he uh, graduated from Clemson, was a, an All-American. I, I forgot whether he... Uh, uh, won any particular prize, but he should have. He's a talented athlete and a pretty good quarterback. Right. Well, it just so happens that after getting on uh, his uh, team, which at that time was the Houston uh, team, uh, he had 22 counts, which then escalated to 26 counts of indecent exposure, lewd behavior, and uh, basically promoting prostitution. Uh, he has, to this day, received no jail time. Uh, he uh, he was out of the NFL with a really bad spanking of, he missed 11 games, a total of 11 games. But he did sign a five-year contract for $230 million, plus $44 million as a signing bonus, and a contract now that is worth $46 million per year, guaranteed no matter what he does. Uh, his accusations were repetitive. I read the accounts of every one of them. Uh, he was uh, constantly trying to get the masseuse to uh, touch his uh, his genitals, and he went far enough to uh, recruit prostitution from them and other things. Those are things, again, if you or I would do it, who are not uh, an accomplished athlete and are not worth all the money that uh, – football team wants to pay someone to make even more money, uh, you and I would be in jail. So getting back to the main point, uh, the term no one is above the law 
absolute nonsense. There's a lot of people above the law one way or another. And I think every one of you who are listening to this can think of a few people yourself. Shame on us and our system for not insisting that no one's above the law is, is really a, an applied uh, thing. I'll conclude with that and hopefully some interesting data for you. All right. That was Climate Change, the real story with Dr. Robert Marks. Take care, guys. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hello, everyone. My name is Courtney, and I am a guest host on the Woman CEO in Reflection podcast. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Neil Haley and Nikki Friaz. How you doing, girl? As you can see, she's full of personality, I'm good. How you doing? I'm doing great. So Nikki <laughs> Friaz is the author of Does This Divorce Make Me Look Fat? and the creator of GirlTellMe.com. She's contributed to publications like Pop Sugar. Forbes, Boardroom, and the Daily Beast on her mission to writer domination, taking over the world. That's not in there. I added it. <laughs> she's currently teaches at Washington Improv Theater, and her second book, Damn, You Still Single, will re- be released in October of 2023. Hey, Nikki, girl. How you doing? Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing amazing. I'm so glad that you could join me today. So I met Nikki through a program called Hey Young Writers, where both of us were, um, we got to do workshops for free for other writers. And I actually joined Nikki's workshop and it was her personality, such a great storyteller. And so my question to you is, have you always had this gift of storytelling and writing? And like, how did you come to the decision that you wanted to be an author or writer? Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. I'm really excited as I drive, but I'm being very safe. So at least I'm wearing my seatbelt. So um, I will tell you in regards to storytelling, I've always been a storyteller. I always blame it on my childhood trauma, but that's another story, right? Um, But in regards to you know, just being the funny person. Um, I've always been super attracted to performing in some type of way. Um, And I honestly hated writing. I've been writing maybe now for about four and a half, five years more seriously. But before then I did plays, I did stand up, I did improv, I performing, but I started to notice that some things were becoming more draining and other things were not. So it was kind of like the Goldilocks of, figuring out what I wanted to do. So I would do stand-up and I was like, "Mm, it's a little too draining. I don't really like the environment. Okay, that one's, you know, not right. And then I would do plays and then I'd be like, well, this takes a lot of time. So I don't want to do that either. Um, And I ended up on writing because I was like, I can make people laugh and I don't have to be there. I can, you can mind your business, get the humor when you want to, you can put it down, you can go away. And I can still like have my own like energy and I can kind of savor that. So writing is very new to me, but it just came after years and years of trying to find the type of comedy where I feel comfortable being able to like produce, but also not have the expectation of being there. Yeah, I love that. You know, I was saying Nikki, so basically you figured it out and you were able to put that spin on things, right? You took specifically enough what you didn't like doing, but you want to make people laugh in writing. How challenging was it to build the audience you built? Because everyone talks about how we build an audience, right? I build it on my radio show to uh, numbers even bigger than what we talked about before, the 5 million a week where I'm on National City Radio. I have a podcast, a number 11 celebrity podcast in the world according to Feedspot, all these things. But I put so much time and effort. Did you have to do the same thing in writing to get yourself known out there as a writer? Um, so when it came to writing for publications like Forbes, like the bigger guys, I always am just of the mindset of like, I don't know, but I'm going to try it. I just try to do things that are, that make me scared. Right. Um, I still am 
you know, I still struggle with the confidence that comes with writing in certain aspects of it. In regards to building the platform, um, I do it every day. You know what I mean? Like the book was not easy. It was not something that was just kind of like, all right, well, like, let's just see what happens here. But I think a big reason why um, I'm starting to get more people that are enjoying the book and things like that is because I just don't care, right? Um, I think at a certain point, you have to determine what success is to you. And my success was just getting out the book. I think mm -hmm. if I had an expectation of published author to be like, I'm going to put a book out. And I think we do this as people, right? We're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to put something out and it's going to explode. And then the only people that read it or listen are your mom and your close friends, right? So for me to kind of build more of a following and things like that was definitely just putting myself out there in regards to being like, you know, I'm, I'm on the grind. I'm at Barnes and Noble like every day, like, hey, listen, buy my book. If you don't want it, keep it moving. You know what I mean? And just kind of not, putting the pressure on people to necessarily be like, you need to read this. This will be the best thing for you. I'm like, listen, I don't care if you like it or not. Just give it to somebody that potentially does. So <laughs> I think that kind of building that, you know, some type of following, which like, like I said, I even think till this day, like I'm always going to grind and I'm always going to try to expand to writer domination. It just comes from the lack of pressure that I put on people to, receive or not receive my gift of what I'm passionate about. And mm. I think the biggest thing that comes from that is that people are like, okay, you know, like, I'm not going to put the pressure on myself. If you don't like it, if there's only 10 people that read my book, fine. My goal at the end of the day was to write a book, right? Mm. Um, six, you know what I mean? Because we all try to determine it based off of, oh, well, I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller. And don't get it twisted. That's on the list. But you're also one speck of sand on the beach and you have to kind of be realistic. Like we got dreams, we got goals and, but also put realistic timelines to them and kind of yeah. see like, what does it mean initially to just put out a book? Yeah. Totally. Get, so. Yeah. I was, you gave us so much to like kind of dive into and twist and turn from. And I feel like, so just this last thing that you were saying, it was making me think about detachment. And so it sounds like you got to a space of like, my goal is to write a book and that's what I want to do. And if my, if I write the book without worrying about the outcome, then I have succeeded. And so what has that been like being able to practice detachment and also balancing confidence with learning how to write? Or not learning how to write, but getting comfortable with your writing because you're an amazing writer. I feel like, you know, you mentioned earlier about um, trauma and comedy, but your storytelling and the way that you write, y'all, y'all have to get her book. I can't wait for the second book to come out. Thank you so much. I love that. Um, you know, it's been a very, if I'm going to be honest, it's been very disappointing yeah. uh, because I put the book out and I was like, that's it. I'm about to be famous, quit my job, let it go. And now I will tell you the support that I have received for my first book has been amazing. Uh, I am completely understanding now when they tell you that like, you have to start with your community um, because I will tell you most of the, the people that have bought my book are people that I went to high school with and then people who tell other people. And I've started to see in that sense, right? But it's extremely, um, I'm going to just say it's very difficult because I am just constantly always selling my book, my dream, my idea, why I think it's a great idea. And because of that, like, it's, it's like we go back to it, right? It was, it's a very draining process because all I'm doing all day to publish and promote and to do all these things with these books is to time. It's creating relationships, having meaningful relationships with people who are like, listen, I like you. I want to support you. Mm -hmm. um, I always try to tell people like for Barnes and Noble, people are like, you know, you're a self-published author and you're in two Barnes and Nobles. And I'm like, you guys don't understand the amount of work that I put in to just have these people like me. You know what yeah, I mean? Totally. So it's, you know, it's disappointing in the beginning because you just expect immediately to explode because it's your baby. But then yeah. you also got to kind of ring it in and be like, all right, you know, once you kind of recognize the industry you're in, especially in the publishing world, it is so just 
gatekeepy and lame. And Mm -hmm. like, once you kind of get out of the mindset of like, you know, it's not happening for you because of the lack of talent, it's not happening for you yet because you don't know somebody who knows somebody who can get you in that space. Exactly. Or you don't have enough followers. Exactly. It's so, Mm -hmm. it's so micro. And, you know, I remember I tried very early to get a publisher and I tried to get an agent and I was sending out like maybe 25 query letters a day. And I would get one in a blue moon that would be like, how many followers? And I'm like, y'all don't care. That's all. That's all it is. And this is the thing they don't teach you. Nick, you had the idea Uh that you have to create the community first before writing the book. Uh, Mm -hmm. John Lee, who's on Clubhouse, talks about this. And I've also, I mean, I talked about it as well, but I'm going to give a more credible source. He says, before you create something, you need to build your following first, then create it. And the mistake in, in lots of creators create their brand, then they have a product or service to sell. They don't tell you these things and publishers and, you know, the Today Show, all of them want your following already. So you basically need to build your creator kingdom. And mm-hmm. then once you have your community, then you can launch something. And they don't tell you, and, and the problem is there's so many people tell you, write a book, write a book, write a book, but they don't tell you that part. Yeah. That's yeah. it. They tell you, don't tell no. you that part. And so, but the good news, Nikki, what you're doing is you are creating a community is not correct now. And it's going to be, if you continue to grind, it's going to happen for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I got patience. I mean, I've been doing it for a little bit and I just notice, you know, I think when it comes to going back to success, um, a lot of the things I see for me in the future of like the brand and creating these things um, is really just going back to like creating opportunities and spaces for people like me um, in the sense of like, don't feeling like they fit into the niche of a writer, right? I go into a lot of writing spaces and everybody's very pretentious and they're, they use big words and I'm like, okay, SAT, no, thank you. Right. Uh, I think there's a market for people who just want to express themselves in storytelling. So um, I completely agree in regards to like building the community, but I think also empowering the people around you to be like, you can also write a book, right? Like this yeah. sucks for all of us. Let's all be miserable together. Yeah. A lot, and a lot, lot of people are doing it, Nikki. So all writing books. So you, you're, you're, you're creating a, a mission. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to um, ask a yeah. question because you, as you're talking, I'm just listening to about like, the patience and then you mentioned like I'm patient okay so how did you learn how to be patient and what advice would you give to other people about patience I often tell people don't pray for patience if you're not ready for the test to come because it's going to come your way (laughs) so what suggestions would you have like what are you learning in your process of being patient um so a couple things I say I'm patient because I hope one day it actually makes me more patient um (laughs) I am a very impatient person, but I've also learned that everything, every new, because I'm always pivoting, right? I'm like, okay, cool. I I like this, but I don't like that. So I'm going to try something new. I'm just always trying to find the right specific niche to get me to like the pure fulfillment of being a creator. And I think that's the, the beauty of being a creator is always pivoting. Um, but every new creative project that I have done, I have learned that you will, it's not going to happen the way you want it to. The process will not be the way you expect it to be. And realistically going back to what Neil said, you know, you have to create the want, you have to create the community and that takes time. You know what I mean? It, yeah, that's cliche like sometimes, as it sounds, 10 years. sometimes 10 years, Nikki, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah exactly. I see exactly. as the- you picked this up, a title that's amazing, Nikki, in the fact of divorce. And I'm almost divorced. I'm in the, hopefully soon. I've been 22 months separated, going on maybe 23. It'll be in two more days. And I want that divorce to be wow. fine. Move on. But it's such a challenge for people moving on in their life after that. Mm-hmm. And that's what is that why you're niching down in that area to talk about that so much? Kind of explain that to me, Nikki. <clears throat> So I specifically wrote about divorce because aside from going through one, I noticed when I was going through mine, 
all these books were just lame and not trying to talk about, you know, people's writing and stuff like that, but it was just this kind of toxic positivity of like, it's okay. Like, just do this. And I'm like, no, I just, you know, and I always tell people in my elevator like uh, pitch that does this divorce make me look fat is like eat, pray, love on a budget, right? I could only be sad for three days and then I had to go back to work. I couldn't go to mm. Italy and figure out that I could wear, get fat from pizza and fall in love and just recreate my life. So because I didn't see that type of audience being catered to, because I didn't see women that are loud like me and, and they curse and we're blunt and, you know, we talk a lot of, sh you know, and, you know, smack. Um, I just knew that I wanted to create that for my girlfriends. You know what I'm saying? For the women that I talk to, the women that we can cut up and have a good time, um, I started to notice specifically um, that that wasn't in that niche. That wasn't in the conversation. That wasn't something that was being had. It was just more of like, this is how you get through divorce. The best way to get through divorce is to just mm -hmm. like, you know, like it was just fake. And I was like, nobody's helping me. You know what I mean? Like, the, like these narratives are not... Um, these narratives are not benefiting me. So specifically, I said divorce, but I made it a self-help just because of my process and what I did. So I always tell people it's not just for divorce, but I think based off of everybody's story, um, divorce was my kind of catalyst to like change my life. Amazing. So um, yeah. I think, every, yeah. yeah, so that's, that's why I always have people. And it's funny because I'll do my, I'll be like selling my book and I'll have people come up to me like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, you better congratulate me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not at a divorce a party. party when that's over. It's a party. That's what I'm talking about. It's a parade. What exactly. the young kids say, it's a parade in my city. That's what the kids say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So like, if that's you listen to the song, though. maybe not, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, it's really funny. I just think there's such a stigma around divorce. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. we all are doing it now. So like, if you're not, mm -hmm. you're weird. Right. So <laughs> I just want to like, make light of these kind of situations because I think we can cry about it, but we should most definitely laugh. I think the best yeah. healing method is laughter. And yeah. it was, spe I specifically said divorce because that is my story. So when I wrote my book, because it's really hard to get out there, I always tell people like to get butt naked, right? You're putting your soul out there. You're putting who you are out there. I didn't want anybody to say to me, well, that's not how I experienced it or this and that. And I'll be like, well, you're not me. So, yeah. um, you know, there's a very nerve wracking, uh, mindset when you're putting something out that you created. And I was like, I know specifically that this book is exactly my, my experience. Now, so Nikki, if you would go out on TikTok talking about these things. You would go viral and then be back in stand up. I'm telling you, you have talent. You have a lot of talent. You know, you're the writing, even, huh? I said, isn't she amazing? She's just naturally funny. And then what I will say too, so I've read the book, Does This Divorce Make Me Look Fat? And so we're talking about like, I think it is a good book for somebody that needs laughter, for somebody that needs truth, for somebody that needs authenticity and like real transparency of what the hell do I do when I'm going through something like this. But I also think about like just any, any type of relationship or maybe even leaving a job. Like this book is not just about divorces. And so it's funny. I When I was reading the book, I would wake up every morning and read a chapter and I'm taking pictures and sending it to my friends. And we're like talking and laughing. Like is book club worthy? Is movie worthy? Like Nikki, so your goal is to um, be... New York best time seller, and I see it in your future. I, I see totally it. do it's it. so close. It's so close. She's gotta Thanks. go viral. She has to go viral, and that's where I'll be talking off air. You need to go viral. You have the talent. I see you. I see you on HBO comedy specials. I did. That's what I envision for you. And it's then we'll have to, so so that's that's truly you have the gift, and you just have to find your platform to to blow that out. And that yeah. could be threads for gosh sakes, because threads is not come, the, the newest social media platform that even though it's Instagram and no one's really putting time in, you find a platform with content creating and go viral or become an influencer. It changes your life. Okay. Absolutely. And then I yeah. tell you, YouTube with shorts, I think you could do dominate that. That's my thoughts. But work is the best place. We are running out of time, Courtney, where we can yeah. find information on Nikki and stuff. Where can we go? Where can we find you, Nikki? 
Oh, you're talking to me. I thought you were talking to Courtney. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm freaking out. Um, uh, so I run a platform called girltellme.com. You can always find me there. Uh, a lot of my pieces, like Courtney was saying, um, you could see us on there. But if you want to support me and pay my bills, I am on Amazon. If you want a specific signed copy, hit me up on girltellme.com. We are also at barnesandnoble.com. And the next book is coming out later this year. It's supposed to be October, but I've been stressed out about my second edit. So it might be a little bit later, but it will come out this year. What's the book in the call? It's called Damn, You Still Single? I, I, we got to talk about that another time, no doubt. Okay, I love it. I love it, okay? I don't want to be virulent. <laughs> Look at me. I'm already wanting this divorce to be final and not be single. So there you go. Okay, so we like that, Nikki. Appreciate it. Thank you right, so thanks, much, guys. Nikki. I appreciate you Bye, so guys. much. Great show. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women CEO in Reflection. To reach out to one of our guests, their contact is in the description of the show. Do you want a total mindset transformation?